Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Today's business leaders are saying that sustainability and diversity metrics are key to the way they do business. But what does that look like in practice? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear more. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. This week, we learned that President Trump knew about the grave threat of the coronavirus long before he publicly acknowledged it. Here he is with journalist Bob Woodward. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you, sure, I, want you to I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down Yes, sir. because I don't want to create a panic. But on the campaign trail, Joe Biden condemned the president for not telling the truth and betraying the American people. It's beyond despicable. It's a uh, dereliction of duty. It's a disgrace. And in the American West, California endures its worst wildfires in state history. We've been in the Bay Area for uh, about uh, going on 40 years, and we've never seen it like this. Just unreal. This is unprecedented. It's our week in the news, and we have a great panel to guide us through it. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Kimberly Atkins. She's senior editorial writer at the Boston Globe. Kimberly, always great to have you on On Point. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Anthony. My pleasure. Also joining us from Canaan, Connecticut, is Monica Alba. She's political reporter for NBC News. Monica, thanks for being here. Great to have you as well. Thanks for having me. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. Hello, Jack. Great to have you as well as part of the panel. Hello, Anthony, Kim, and Monica. Good to have you all. Lots to talk about. And let's start right off with the revelations about what President Trump actually, what President Trump actually knew about the coronavirus and when he knew it. Um, in a new book by Bob Woodward, we learned that the president told Woodward on February 7th that we were confronting a deadly virus outbreak. But at the time, he was playing it down, playing down the risk in his public remarks to Americans. And he admitted to Woodward, as we heard at the top of this segment, that that he wanted to play it down so as not to create panic. Kimberly, let me start with you. What what stands out in all of this uh, to you? Well, I think about that um, February 7th date where the president uh, admitted that he had learned from uh, intelligence from officials uh, in China just how deadly the virus was, but also that it traveled through the air. And we can see for the subsequent seven months in all of his public statements, uh, he's not only downplayed the risk, but he uh, frankly lied to the American public about it not being a risk, about the flu being more dangerous, um, really in an effort to uh, focus on trying to keep the economy afloat, focusing on not trying to uh, tank the stock market, something the president feels very strongly about, uh, but at the detriment of uh, helping people to understand just how deadly this threat is. And look, would, would this have changed policy of the administration, how it reacted or, or its failures in reacting to this virus? We don't know, but it's certainly shocking to see the president admit in real time months before uh, we saw him uh really deny that this virus was as deadly as it was to the American people and to hear him do that on tape. Well, speaking of that tape, let's play a little more. So here's Bob Woodward. He interviewed President Trump about the coronavirus, as you said, Kimberly, on February 7th. That's nearly three weeks before the first confirmed instance of community spread in the United States. Here's here's a bit from that interview. You know, it's a very tricky situation. It's uh, it, it goes is. it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. So that was really at odds, particularly particularly that statement about the flu, uh, really at odds with what he told the public. Here he is on February 26th. The president participated uh, in his first daily briefing about the virus. Um, here he is with CNN Sanjay Gupta. Flu has a fatality ratio of about 0.1%. Correct. Uh, this has a fatality ratio of somewhere between 2 and 3%. 
Given we that, think, that we, we think, think we, we don't know exactly the that. So far. And the flu is higher than that. The flu is much higher than that. There's more people who get the flu, but this yeah. is spreading, or it's going to spread maybe within communities. That's it may. expectation. It may. Does, that, does that worry you? Because that seems no. to be what worries the American people. No, because people. we're ready for it. No, no, because we're ready for it. Monica Alba, what did you hear uh, in this interview with Bob Woodward or, or read in, in what's been written about this? Well, so often we cover stories like this that rely on sourcing that may be based on recollections or somebody's description of a conversation. This is actually an audio tape of exactly what the president was saying to a veteran journalist. And so the contradiction from what he told Bob Woodward to what he was telling the American people just couldn't be more stark again, because we can play, as you just did, exactly what he was saying at the time. So the White House has made the argument he didn't want to incite panic, that he was trying to project calm and confidence. But you also know that in that same time period, you had people around him, like the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, warning him that this was going to be the toughest thing he would face likely in his presidency and his administration, and that he really needed to take it seriously. And yet, even after that, he repeatedly downplayed the effects of the coronavirus, and he held giant events and rallies. And of course, we all know the campaign was in full swing on both sides. There were Democrats campaigning uh, throughout January and February as well, before everything was put on pause. But the president seemed to be armed with this knowledge of just how deadly it could be. That was really the word that he used. And he continued to campaign. He continued to tell people not to worry. He continued to defend his own response and handling, seemingly much more obsessed with how he was being portrayed and how he was going to be written about in the media, since that's something he spends so much time uh, digesting and analyzing. But the other thing that really stands out from that time period is the sort of warnings he was giving to the public, which was, you don't need to wear a mask at the time. We all know that shifted weeks later. Please still go about your daily lives. We don't want people to worry. And of course, that all came to a screeching halt, really, once the economy did in mid-March. But this is a president who really sometimes doesn't seem to understand when he's confronted with his own words, um, just how difficult it is to reconcile these two narratives at play. So what really stood out to me was the fact that he didn't seem to grasp just how problematic it would be that back in February, he was admitting something that six months later just is really, really problematic for him, especially 50 or so days out from the election. Jack, what's your take on on how problematic this is? I mean, are we talking about um, a president that actually misled the country in a way that might have cost lives? Or or how are you thinking about this? Well, it certainly looks that way. You know, just to back up a second, last week we discovered uh, that the president, in the words of General Barry McCaffrey, was unfit to be commander-in-chief. No president who disparages the dead of Bella Wood as suckers and losers, is fit to be commander-in-chief. That's just plain. This week, we really found out that he was the vector-in-chief at home. I mean, that he was, in effect, uh, as, as our colleagues have said, lied about what he knew and when he knew it and encouraged uh, uh, behavior that could only spread the virus. He had, I think, something like six rallies uh, after he said that to Woodward about knowing it was uh, airborne and so on, uh, uh, putting his own uh, supporters in dire, at dire risk. He's doing it now. He was doing it in Carolina. He was doing it in Michigan. He's doing it uh, elsewhere. He's still doing it. People don't wear masks. It's like a, you know, a kind of death cult meeting. And his excuse, you know, well, I didn't want to induce panic I, I, Joe Biden is much closer to the truth when he said says that he wanted to keep the stock market up for his rich pals. And Charlie Sykes in the bulwark, really, he lists the, 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 some of the things that Trump has stirred pa- panic about. Mexican rapists, Muslim terrorists, caravans, rigged elections, uh, burning cities, anarchists on planes, Cory Booker coming into your suburb. There's nothing he hasn't been willing to stir panic about to help him electorally. All of this goes to uh, really, to me, a damning statement in the in the, the Woodward book and a risky one by Anthony Fauci that the only thing the president cares about is his reelection. Well, um, as you suggest or said pretty plainly, all this is playing out on the on the campaign trail, the presidential campaign trail. Former Vice President Joe Biden pounced on these uh, revelations about the president, accusing Trump of betraying the American people. So here he is speaking at a campaign event in Warren, Michigan this week. He knew how dangerous it was. 
And while this deadly disease ripped through our nation, he failed to do his job on purpose. It was a life and death betrayal of the American people. Experts say that if he had acted just just one week sooner, 36,000 people would have been saved. Joe Biden speaking earlier this week in Warren, Michigan. Uh, President Trump was in Michigan as well. Kimberly, I want to talk a little bit about where the race stands in this final push as we head toward November 3rd. Uh, polls still show Biden with a significant lead, but, but I think it's fair to say they are tightening in some battleground states. What do you see out there in terms of the shape and contours of this race right now? Well, given my uh, normal caveat about polling, it really depends on the poll, how they're polling and a lot of factors there. Um, But you look at polling, at least I look at polling to see momentum. And what we are seeing, I believe, is that people are finally starting to tune into this election. They're starting to pay attention, which is usually the case after Labor Day, uh, and that this is going to be a hard fought race. This is not uh, something that at this moment stands in any sort of runaway uh, in one direction or another. As you pointed out, Joe Biden has a lead. More importantly, to look at rather than national polls are polls in key battleground states. And at this point, uh, Joe Biden still holds uh, a small lead in some of these battleground states. One number that I always tend to look at is uh, in how many of them he is over the 50 percent point in these polls. And at this moment, in all of the battlegrounds, uh, except for Florida and Pennsylvania, he is over that 50 percent point. So if he's able to hold on to that, obviously that would give him a great advantage. Again, polls are polls, and I don't want to put too much into that. One thing we can look at, though, is Biden has a significant advantage right now in the money race. If you recall, just a few months ago, the Trump uh, campaign and the RNC uh, boasted a billion dollars in total fundraising. They had uh, an online apparatus that matched Act Blue on the Democratic side, and they were really going gangbusters when it came to fundraising. But they have blown through that money. Now in August, the Biden campaign raised more, is on air uh, with ads in more states, and the Trump campaign has a long way to go to catch up to that in these final weeks before the election. Really interesting The what, what's happened to President Trump's uh, money advantage in this race, and I want to talk a little bit more about that after the break. We're Talking about the week in the news, we've got a great panel. Kimberly Atkins, Jack Beatty, Monica Alba, stand by. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. In a recent episode, series CEO Mindy Luber says sustainability has reached a board level. Look, if you're an agricultural company and you're not thinking about water risk, you're an apparel company, you're not thinking about risk to your cotton crop around the world. If you are a bank and not thinking about stranded assets of fossil fuels, you're not probably doing your due diligence. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks, and we're talking about the week in the news. Both President Trump and Joe Biden were in Michigan this week, a key battleground state that uh, helped uh, Donald Trump win in 2016. Here's the president visiting Michigan yesterday. A vote for Republicans is a vote for safe communities, great jobs, and a limitless future for all Americans. Instead of letting Washington change us, despite all that we have been through, we are changing Washington. And after spending most of the spring and summer campaigning from his home in Delaware, Joe Biden was also back out on the campaign trail, including in Michigan. Here he is speaking there on Wednesday. Under Donald Trump, Michigan lost auto jobs even before COVID hit. And what about offshoring? 
Has Trump delivered on stopping companies from shipping jobs overseas, American jobs? You already know the answer. Of course not. With me is Kimberly Atkins, senior editorial writer for the Boston Globe, Monica Alba, political reporter for NBC News, and On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. And Monica, I'd love I'd love it if you could pick up on Kimberly's point before the break and about the sort of overall shape of this race as you see it, including that financial advantage that Trump had uh, just a few months ago, $200 million, but the Times reported that, um, you know, he had a $1.1 billion campaign that but that his campaign and the party raised more than $800 million of that has been spent. What you make of that and the overall shape of the race? It's very significant, Anthony, because you have here an incumbent president who really should be using the trappings of that as an advantage. Look at everything he's able to do in terms of campaigning. But also, he's the only modern president to have filed for re-election on the day he was inaugurated. So in essence, he's been running this race for so many years that that really has led them to burn through this cash a lot faster. But they also simply had a bloated budget. They spent tons of money beyond your typical campaign expenditures. And so when there was a staff shakeup over the summer and the deputy campaign manager was elevated, the first thing he did was essentially hit the pause button and reassess everything from the advertising strategy to how many staffers were traveling where and really trying to reduce that. But it was clear that they were outraised by Joe Biden and Democrats for several months. And then it just in this last week, we saw how stark the picture is with the Biden and Democrats announcing they had raised this monster haul in August of more than $364 million. And the Trump campaign and Republican National Committee waited a whole week to announce what theirs was, which was much lower. It was $210 million. So we don't have a good picture from either campaign how much cash on hand they have to spend in these last days. But the advantage there is clearly uh, tilted toward the Democrats. But you could argue also that the president, as he does now at these airport rallies, landing in Air Force One and using all of those advantages, he's trying to use that uh, to make the best case for his reelection. But look at just how different the campaigning styles are. The president last night did have thousands of people still gathering in Michigan with very limited social distancing, absolutely inconsistent mask wearing, whereas you could have a situation where Joe Biden won't be holding any kind of rally in the next 50 days. He's holding much smaller events, roundtables, really making sure that the pandemic and the health crisis is actually a centerpiece of the campaign and taking health and safety precautions at every turn as a result. So as you see the candidates get out there more, The differences just couldn't be more stark in terms of how they're doing it. And for the president, anything that actually distracts from the pandemic, we're told by his aides and allies, he feels helps him. He doesn't want to be talking about what's going on with coronavirus. But of course, when you have the Woodward tapes and this reporting, it's impossible to ignore. And it really follows him wherever he goes on the campaign trail. Jack, I'd love to come to you on this. You know, Monica mentioned uh, the, 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 the big campaign rallies that uh, President Trump is holding at airports. I saw him do that up there in your state, in New Hampshire, just two weeks ago. He landed in Manchester, pulled in on Air Force uh, One. Lots of people at that event not wearing masks. They were told to wear masks. They booed when that announcement came over the public address system. Meanwhile, Joe Biden uh, with much, much smaller uh, events. Uh, but but what's your sort of view overall on the shape of this race with uh, less than two months to go before Election Day? Well, uh, Mr. Trump is is dipping deep into a well of uh, violent uh, depictions in his advertising and in his and in his rhetoric. He said this week, these uh, showing, you know, pictures of people fighting. These are Democrats peaceful protests on Monday. He retreated. He retweeted a prediction that unrest quite, quote, could lead to a rise of citizen militias around the country. And the Washington Post in a survey just goes through his violent rhetoric lately and on the campaign trail. And, and you know, what is he doing here? He's pitching to something and something uh, profoundly frightening. A political science paper uh, released this week pointed out that in a 2020 survey, January survey, uh, most Republicans agreed that, tr- that the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that we may have to use force to save it. 
almost three quarters of Republicans agreed that it's hard to trust the results of elections when so many people will vote for anyone who offers a handout. Uh, there, a substantial number, 40%, agreed a time will come when patriotic Americans have to take the law into their own hands. Hmm. Now, it was, it, was, it was frightening on the Democratic side, too. Uh, something like, uh, oh gosh, nearly a quarter, two-thirds of Democrats agreed that violence would be justified if the opposing party won the election in November. This is scary stuff. The president is pushing, in regard to feelings about violence, on an open door among many Republicans, and their weakening commitment to democracy— uh, because they see it as as threatening their you know the white supremacy to put it right to put it bluntly, and the president has no less than a hundred emergency powers to deploy. It's it's beginning to look like he's queuing people up for violent affrays either after the election or before the election or perhaps even on election day. This is the most frightening moment it seems to me in American democracy possibly. Uh, since 1860. Boy, what do you think? Kimberly Atkins, do you see this uh, in, in such a dire way? I mean, Jack painted a pretty dire picture there, but based on a, a pretty serious study. What, what, do, what do you think? Yes. I mean, look, definitely through reporting and talking to folks, you do get a sense of at the very least concern uh, about the results of the election, the ability of people to vote, um, efforts that we've seen take place, uh, reports of efforts that uh, to stop uh, online or not online, but um, by mail voting uh, by folks who, you know, on one side, you have information urging people to vote by mail. And on the other side, you see uh, the president and others disparaging that process. So it's uh, it's sad, but it's understandable that people would feel concerned mm. uh, about the results of these elections. That's why it's very important for election officials at the state and local level to do all that they can and to message their efforts uh, in order to protect the integrity of the vote. It, it is a crucial time uh, in an election. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It's a, a very um, divided nation over issues like race. Uh, it's a terrible uh, economic out. Uh, the the economic impact of the virus uh, is affecting just about everyone. Uh, and so this is a crucial election and protecting that very important election system is crucial. Well, meanwhile, and maybe as a, as a counterpoint to some of the, the concern and fear that many, many of us are feeling about this current moment, I want to sort of point out that there were more primaries this week. New Hampshire and Rhode Island had primaries. Massachusetts held primaries last week in which, a, you know, a very hard-fought Senate race was up for grabs. I mean, I bring this up because there's been a lot of concern expressed about the November 3rd election. President Trump, as you, you and Jack Kimberly both pointed out, raised the issue of fraud around mail-in voting. But based on—and I'll come to you, Monica, with this question—based on what we've seen so far in the primaries, it seems that voting has gone ahead without any problems. Does that— make you hopeful at all about uh, November 3rd? I like the idea of hope. So yes, let's say yes. To me. <laughs> I appreciate that. that. <laughs> but it is very uh, interesting to think about what will happen when you do have millions of people who are going to engage in this system of mail-in voting. And of course, this is an area where it really doesn't match reality, where the president says, I'm somebody who wants to promote calm someplace he's incited a ton of fear is in this process of mail-in balloting. He really believes and has argued for months now that if that is the way people vote, it will be, in his words, a rigged election. He has made these absolutely false claims of widespread fraud as it relates to this system. And while we have seen certain examples in very small pockets of people who are violating election laws by trying or attempting to vote twice, it's certainly not something that is an overarching presence. And as you point out, just in these last few weeks in primaries, early voting is fully underway and people are using this and it all seems to be working. But you had this controversy just a couple of weeks ago where the president himself directed people to go vote twice. They right. had to walk back those comments because, of course, that is illegal by any stretch. And you did have certain people saying, OK, I'm going to try to request a mail-in ballot 
send it in and then show up at my polling place to see if it was counted. And if not, the president seemingly encouraging people to then wreak havoc also on a system because many poll workers and locations say, actually, please don't do that. If you've already mailed in your ballot, we don't want to have overwhelming lines and all of these issues uh, on actual election day. So please do, if you have mailed it, trust that. And that's why so many folks are being encouraged to also make a vote plan and know what they're going to do and when they're going to do it ahead of November 3rd. But this is a place where the president continues to raise the specter of an election that won't be fair. And he has told his own supporters, which to me are the comments that stand out the most, that he feels the only way he can lose is if it's rigged. But to me, that also signals a preparation for that outcome, which is something we really haven't heard him talk much about. To me, that sounds like he is realizing what that scenario could look like. And that's his way of sort of trying to prepare people for that outcome. But he and the Republican National Committee have also mounted these legal battles trying to make it more difficult for people to vote by mail in certain states. The Republican National Committee has something like 40 election-based lawsuits all across the country exactly on this issue, trying to roll back what some other Democratic-led states have tried to make easier, which is to vote by mail when people are afraid to go to the polls during a health crisis. And who can blame them? Mm, Who can blame them indeed? Well, I want to move on and talk about some other important issues this week, including Congress's inability to hammer out another COVID relief bill. So a little background here. The House had passed a $3.4 trillion bill. Republicans in the Senate wanted to spend some more like a trillion dollars. This week, they proposed a much pared down bill, but Democrats blocked it. So here's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer criticizing the Republican-authored COVID bill on Wednesday. Facing the greatest economic crisis in 75 years, the greatest health crisis in a century, Leader McConnell isn't searching for bipartisan progress. He's looking for political cover. What we have now is a stripped-down bill cobbled together not as a serious legislative response, but as a check-the-box vote for vulnerable Republicans so they can pretend like they did something. So, Kimberly, what was tell us more about what was in that Republican bill and why were Democrats so determined to block it? Well, Democrats have felt uh, from the beginning uh, that they, you know, they passed the HEROES Act, which was sort of set the marker at at what the next round of uh, relief would be. And it was a robust package that deals not only with uh, the payments to individuals and bolstering that uh, small business fund uh, that was so crucial in that first level of support, but also providing aid to local cities and states, aid for uh, bolstering the election, aid for bolstering things like the post office, which became uh, the the sort of the focal point of this fight over mail-in ballots and other things. Uh, And so the the Senate passed a bill that had a fraction of that, Mm. um, that it it had, uh, it bolstered, unemployment subsidies and some uh, money for the postal service and child care assistance, but not very much. It was a, it was a, the difference was in the trillions of dollars between the two plans. When it was offered, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell didn't even uh, say that he had the Republican votes to pass that, the way that you described it, uh, the way that it was described as a way to sort of uh, protect vulnerable Republicans to show that they were trying to do something is really what was happening here. So you have really, at the end of the day, two very different visions of what this next round of support uh, is going to look like. Democrats saying that the the country needs much more and Republicans really wanting to do uh, a much smaller package. But at the end of the day, uh, the last uh, supplemental unemployment checks that Americans received uh, was in July. Uh, We are now into September. The economic impact of of the virus continues to grow. And leading into an election, uh, this is potentially perilous for everyone, everybody who's vulnerable in Washington, D.C., when if you are an American at home, uh, it, you can't help but uh, think, what is Congress doing at a time that Americans need help? Businesses are closing. We are seeing uh, more and more empty storefronts on main streets across America. And the government should step in now, uh, if ever. And Monica, does it look like that the, the Congress is going to figure out how to deliver some kind of new relief effort, at least before the election? Or, or are we at an impasse here? 
I think the impasse is really what has been uh, most clear from just the last month. It's very hard to see a, a scenario where things are resolved ahead of November. And you have the president here who is also removed from this. He's taken a bit of a step back. And the other issue, though, is that administration officials who had been negotiating on Capitol Hill every day with Speaker Nancy Pelosi have sort of taken a pause as well and said, we are completely at an impasse and we don't know what would really change that again. And as you get closer to the election, the the odds of that happening tend to go down. But of course, you also have so many House members and people who will be up for re-election who are making a lot of their re-election argument based on what they've been able to deliver or not deliver for the American people. So it becomes an entire referendum as well as we get closer to that. But at this point, negotiations have completely stalled. They really collapsed in August and neither side seems to be willing to say this is what would resolve it in a way that makes the other happy to come to the table and push it forward. If that had been the case, I think we would have already had something. So, Jack, massive needs across the country, unemployment rate, 8 9%, something like that, um, Those that extra round of, of stimulus checks for individual Americans no longer coming. I mean, you would think that politicians in Washington would figure out how to do this at, at a moment like this. Yes, you would think that the survival mechanism would triumph, instinct would triumph over Republican ideology, which says basically uh, we cut taxes for rich people and that's our economic policy. Um, All right. Well, this is we're going to we're talking about the week in the news. Uh, I'm with uh, Jack Beatty, Monica Alba and, and Kimberly Atkins. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we're going to talk about the timeline for a vaccine when we might expect that. Will that be ready? by Election Day. Probably not. Stay with us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about a week in the news with Kimberly Atkins, senior editorial writer at the Boston Globe, Jack Beatty, On Point news analyst, and Monica Alba, political reporter for NBC News. And folks, I want to talk a little bit about hopes for a vaccine. So at a press briefing on Monday, President Trump said that a vaccine for the coronavirus could be ready as soon as October. The Centers for Disease Control has told states to be prepared to distribute a vaccine by November 1st, two days before the election. But infectious disease expert uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, the White House coronavirus uh, advisor, said on Wednesday on CBS This Morning that that timeline is probably unlikely. The projection that I've made, and I'll stick by it, is that we would likely get an answer if this is safe and effective by the end of the year, likely November, December. Is it possible, is it conceivable that we could find out earlier, let's say October? Certainly that's possible. I think it's unlikely, but you can't rule it out. I think the more likely scenario is that we will know by the end of this calendar year and hopefully we'll be able to start vaccinations in earnest as we begin 2020. So not by Election Day. Kimberly Atkins, um, what do you make of the way this is being talked about? And, you know, obviously there is a huge sort of political component of this as folks, um, as particularly the White House, talks about the timing uh, leading up to an election. 
Yes, and there is a big difference in the way that President Trump talks about it, uh, both at the White House and on the campaign trail, uh, than how other folks, uh, experts and scientists and folks even uh, at pharmaceutical companies are talking about this. The president at his rallies uh, are claiming that Democrats are trying to delay uh, the the vaccine until after the election. He joked at one point, uh, I think he was joking that uh, Democrats will suddenly release it on uh, November 4th uh, if he loses the election. Uh, but even within his own administration, there is a much more serious, somber tone taken on this. Uh, FDA, uh, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn said that he had no intention of overruling career scientists at the agency, given their assessment of when a vaccine would be safe and effective and ready. And we have seen uh, AstraZeneca, one of the companies that is working on a, a vaccine, slow down phase three of their own trials, put the brakes on it over concerns of safety. All of these things are making it uh, more likely, as Dr. Fauci said, that that timeline is going to come sometime after the election, later uh, in the year or the beginning of next year. Uh, also, pharmaceutical companies made the uh, extraordinary statement saying that they will not be rushed by political considerations in finding a safe and effective vaccine. So after weeks of worrying that perhaps the FDA would try to rush through uh, with an emergency approval for a vaccine before all of the evidence about its safety uh, and effectiveness might be in, it seems now that folks, uh, experts are really pushing back on that and saying that safety and effectiveness will come first, not uh, the election timetable. And Monica Alba, I have to say I'm encouraged to hear this. I mean, obviously, we want a vaccine as soon as possible to to, to end the, the kind of suffering and the shutdown of this economy in so many different ways, not to mention the personal su uh, suffering. But um, important to get a sense that, um, you know, this is going to be removed from political considerations, right? Absolutely. And we all absolutely do want a vaccine to come. Everybody can root for that same goal. The question is when. And the other thing to consider here is while you may have a vaccine that looks to be effective, there's so much more that has to be done in order for people to feel good about receiving it. And what will the distribution of that vaccine look like? So while the president is hoping for a literal Hail Mary here in terms of an announcement he can make, He's not at all able to say that people will be able to receive this as soon as what he sometimes has promised and misled people in terms of it coming together in the next couple of months. So the politics of the vaccine are absolutely at play here, and they're inextricably linked. It's very hard now to remove the two from each other when you have the president constantly talking about it. And Joe Biden was asked this week if there was a vaccine that was developed and announced during the Trump administration would you take it? And he said, yes. He said, if there was a vaccine tomorrow, God willing, he would. He said, Joe Biden said, if it would cost him the election, he would do it. So that is one example of a, an approach that he's taking. But his vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, was similarly asked if the president announced a vaccine, would you trust that? And she said she wouldn't take his word for it. She would want assurances from scientists and the health experts that it was the right thing to do. So then you also have to extend that to the president's supporters and other people. I've asked a couple of them in my interactions in the last few weeks, would you take a vaccine? And frankly, some of them said, I don't know. This is the other thing. You have a public that isn't at this point completely convinced that whatever will be produced along this timeline, accelerated or not, will be efficacious. And that is another entire dimension to this. But you also have Dr. Fauci from day one had projected a timeline that was very different than the president's. He had always said, by the end of 2020, but more likely early 2021 is where you're really going to see action. And that pause in the AstraZeneca trial, as Kimberly mentioned, is something that should give everybody a little bit of hesitation just about how likely the clock is ticking. October is mere weeks away. The fact that this could all come together by then is really highly unlikely. Mm. I want to move on and talk about another story involving President Trump and the military. Uh, the president made news this week with a rather remarkable attack against the leadership of the U.S. military. Now, this comes just days after The Atlantic reported and, and Fox News, among other media outlets, confirmed that President Trump had called U.S. servicemen and women losers, 
and suckers. This was uh, regarding a, a visit to a World War I military cemetery in France, which he didn't make. President Trump said on Monday that top U.S. military leaders uh, seek out wars in order to please defense contractors. Here's what he said. I'm not saying the military is in love with me. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. But uh, we're getting out of the endless wars. You know how we're doing. So, Jack, what do you, what do you make of this, uh, you know, full assault on 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 uh, military leaders uh, on his military brass? It's it was quite something this week. Well, yeah, and in keeping, as you suggest, with the uh, you know the gravamen of the Atlantic peace that he disparages and has contempt for people who uh, you know who live by the code of duty, honor, and country. And, you know, that could be said that what he said about the Pentagon military industrial complex and President Eisenhower left office with that warning. And that has ever since been a staple of left wing critiques of the Pentagon. Howard Zinn, call your office. Uh, it, you know, it's been and, and there was the president just spouting it. And uh, it, uh, <laughs> it 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 was a. You never know what's going to come out next. And, you know, he says uh, that the the soldiers are for me. Well, there was a recent uh, poll. I don't know how how reliable, but it showed that, in fact, Joe Biden is edging him out among uh, the military. And that's very rare for a Democrat. And in general, we're on we're on notice, even about the vaccine and about everything else. We're we're really on notice for what Secretary Mattis, former Secretary of Defense Mattis told uh, Bob Woodward about uh, Trump's thought processes. He said Trump's orders were beyond stupid to felony stupid. Are we going to get felony stupid orders about vaccines or God knows what between now and Election Day? Uh, If past is prologue, yes. I want to talk about another story um, <clears throat> that I really need some help understanding here. And, and this has to do with the Justice Department making the unusual move to intervene in a case against President Trump. So here's the background. It involves a lawsuit by the author E. Jean Carroll. She accused uh, Trump, Donald Trump, of raping her in Manhattan in the 1990s. So this week, the Justice Department moved to replace President Trump's private lawyers with a team of of government lawyers. And Monica, help me out here, because essentially it it, it seems like, so Mr. Trump is facing allegations of rape before he was president, but his legal defense will be paid for by taxpayers while he's president. Is Is that essentially what's happening here and why? Yes, the Justice Department has intervened in this unusual way to essentially move the court case for now from where it was in New York um, to now be handled exactly as you say by a team of Justice Department lawyers who will be essentially helping the president put his defense together against this. So yes, the question there is then taxpayers would technically then be footing that bill for any potential damages, which is quite an incredible moment and comment in terms of how they feel that should be approached and handled if the U.S. government is indeed allowed to represent the president in this. So it's unclear exactly how that will work. Um, And the other major question here is just sort of how this will proceed exactly as you say, because the president wasn't the president uh, when these allegations were made. And we should point out he has vehemently denied uh, what E. Jean Carroll has said and and the White House continues to say that. But a lot of legal um, eyebrows raised here at exactly how this will work, though we have seen the Department of Justice really intervene on the president's behalf in other ways that have alerted people in terms of a quite close relationship the president really has to his attorney general, William Barr, and these sort of ways that have advanced um, that really certainly don't have a precedent exactly in this way, Anthony. Kimberly, I'd love Anthony, to... Anthony, can I, can I add one please, thing Please, because I was going to um, say, Kimberly, point. you've got a legal background. Please chime in. I'm, I'm dying to hear what you think about this. Yeah, so in layman's terms, what the what the Justice Department is trying to do is to say that uh, this this suit involving E. Jean Carroll is a defamation suit. And what uh, President Trump really said in very crude terms is essentially he would not want to assault someone like E. Jean Carroll. He said that 
when he was president. So Attorney General Barr's Justice Department is claiming, since that is an element of this civil case, and he was president when he said that, then that is the authority they have to intervene. What would also be, it's also an attempt to use uh, civil law, which shields presidents from these sort of uh lawsuits uh, in an effort ultimately to get this case dismissed. So it really is Attorney General Barr really asserting himself into a civil case that has nothing to do with the government, but trying to use those laws and rules in order to make this case against the president go away, which is really astonishing. It really it really sounds that way. Um, we do have time for at least one more story. I want to talk about the Daniel uh, Prude case uh, here. Um, this is a hugely troubling case, uh, yet another case involving allegations of police misconduct and the death of another black man who died in police custody. So for listeners catching up with this, this occurred in Rochester, New York. Um, Daniel Prude's death was largely unknown uh, until last week. That's when his family released body camera uh, footage of his encounter with police on March 23rd, and it showed officers confronting a naked Prude. His family had said he was having a mental health episode, and the footage showed officers handcuffing him, putting a spit sock over his face, and shoving his face into the ground for more than three minutes. And, of course, it sparked protests in the city. And uh, Mayor uh, Lovely Warren addressed reporters after the Rochester police chief uh, and the entire command staff resigned following the release uh, of those videos last week. Uh, Here's what she said. While the timing and tenor of these resignations is difficult, we have faced tough times before. I truly believe that we will get through this. I will be meeting with city council to chart a path forward. So, Jack uh, Beatty, I mean, this, I'm not sure what there is more to say about this case. It's incredibly troubling and just a reminder that these cases keep coming up. And this is an issue that uh, America continues to and must continue to struggle with and, 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 and get to the bottom of. What's your response to what's going on out there in Rochester? Well, you know, a phrase that I, I suppose Kimberly could tell us what it means in the law, but that phrase, depraved indifference to human life, only it's not human life. It's, it's, it's black life. It's, it's black lives. And the president in, in the Woodward book, Bob Woodward says, you know, I've been privileged. My father was a lawyer and a judge. You've been privileged. We've had this white privilege all our lives Look what's happening now all across the country, Mr. President, with these these shootings, uh, this 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 systemic uh, uh, racism in in police departments everywhere. And, and, And how do you respond to that? And instead of saying, you know, it is a bad time, he says, Bob, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. You're, you've gone over to the, to the wackos. Oh, gee, no, no, no. I don't feel any uh, bad. I mean, it is at, all, at the one moment in our country when a president needs to show empathy and some historical understanding. We have the historically illiterate president who at Pearl Harbor turned to General Kelly and said, what went on here now? We have him and we have his stony heart as regards anything touching African-Americans. Kimberly, uh, your thoughts on the Daniel Prude case? Yeah, I would say in addition to what Jack said, uh, it really shines a light on the problem of using police to try to intervene in cases that involve mental health. This country has a terrible history uh, of dealing with mental health issues, and particularly uh, it only seems to compound the issues surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement. When you have a person who uh, is grabbed, uh, a a sack put over his head and and constrained, and the only way that action came many months later uh, is through the demand, through demand by people, by protests to bring it to the attention to uh, the media and the American public, which is uh, really extraordinary. Um, and so these are just two pandemics, if you will, two additional pandemics that are facing this nation. Uh, and we are seeing the tragic outcomes from them. Two pandemics facing this nation. Um I'm going to have to leave it there. It's not the most hopeful note, uh, but these are the times we're living in. Um, I am very grateful to my guest, Kimberly Atkins, senior editor, writer, a senior editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Kimberly, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. 
Thank you, Anthony. And Monica Alba, NBC News political reporter. Monica, it was great having you today. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. You too. Thanks so much. And Jack Beatty, On Point News analyst, as, as always, always great to hear you. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Anthony. Listeners, you can continue the conversation. Get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point is produced by Anna Bauman, Jonathan Chang, Melissa Egan, Eileen Amata, Martin Kessler, Brittany Knotts, Liam Knox, Stephanie, Stefano Katsonis, Hillary McQuilkin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Tim Skoe, Grace Tatter, and Sydney Wertheim. I'm Anthony Brooks. Have a great weekend. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes featuring Mindy Luber, CEO of Ceres, a nonprofit dedicated to integrating sustainability into businesses. Here's host Kurt Nickish. Are the people who are working with ESG data now at companies, are they in a sustainability department? Does this just become part of general strategy or part of finance? How is that evolution happening with the actual people who are looking and working with the numbers? So with both companies and investors, the cute idea of social responsibility that was at a manager level or something their foundations dealt with, that's gone. It is very clear based on data, based on facts, based on trends, that integrating sustainability into the core business is crucial. I mean, you cannot have a climate goal that says we're going to get to a net zero by 2040 if every department at the enterprise is not working on that. That's your manufacturing people. It's your supply chain people. So we find that there is often a sustainability team, but they're laying out a plan that involves almost every enterprise, every office, every part of a firm. And that's what we're seeing because nobody can do the kind of cross-organizational work in one little group. It involves the entire team. It involves HR. Who are you hiring? Is DEI being implemented? How is that working? As it relates to where do you get your resources? Are there enough natural resources to make your product? What are the auto companies doing now that they've committed to by 2035, there will be no combustion engine vehicles coming off their assembly line for consumer vehicles. So sustainability is no longer acute, a niche, a part of something off to the side. It is an integral part of almost every major enterprise and every major investor. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Marotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.